I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Welcome to another Motorsport Magazine podcast, and boy, we've got a good one for you today on a beautiful spring morning in London, overlooking the River Thames. Summer is here, well, nearly anyway. Our guest today has five decades in motor racing. Can you imagine that? He really has. He's been in motor racing for five decades, and he comes from a little part of the south coast of England that used to be the sort of epicentre of international motor racing. Let me give you a few examples. David Purley, John Watson, Derek Bell, Church Farm Racing, Lec Refrigeration Formula One. I mean, you know, the land between Bognor Regis and Littlehampton produced some fantastic talent. Did it not? Mike Earl, welcome to our podcast. First of all, thanks for having me. I assume you couldn't get anybody famous. We couldn't. So no, no. No, we couldn't. <laughs> so, so I'm here. Um, yeah, it was pretty special. Um, I always figured it was because none of us could get a proper job. So, but yeah, it was a great time. And um, I obviously worked with all of those guys one way and the other. I mean, John, for instance, uh, asked if he could rent a room for a night and stayed four years. Um, <laughs> did, he pay the, did he pay the rent? Oh, yeah, yeah, slowly. Um, but he, uh, yeah, he, uh, that went right through his time when he sort of just was in Formula 2, yeah. he came uh, to us at that time, right up until the time he earned enough money to buy his own flat, which was 100 metres down the road. <laughs> so we still fed him. Um, <laughs> but yeah, and Pearlie, obviously, that was something special. Yeah. Uh, it was a special time. Um, I always swore, and he actually agreed with me, that he only ever had his own race team because it was an extension of his army life and it was his own little team. It was yeah. his own platoon. And that's the way he used to tackle it. He had no real interest in motorsport. Oh, yeah. He didn't know anything about motor racing. Um, uh, he, you know, he just really didn't. He didn't bother to read magazines. Yeah. Didn't care what people thought about him. He just loved motor racing. We took him testing one day at uh, Goodwood. And it was the first time we'd run skirts on a car. And he got to the end of the pit road, stopped, came back, and he said, car's broken into, it's dragging on the ground. We said, David, <laughs> we said, David, these cars have got skirts. You're going to get that. Oh, right, okay, fine. <laughs> he hated testing. We took him to, after he'd had his big shunt at Silverstone, we arranged a sort of very private test day with the second car at Goodwood. And uh, 
he said, what did I do here before? So we told him the time and he said, right, okay, fine. So I've got to find out if I'm still good enough. Yeah, yeah, that's it, David. Well, about the third lap, he did what he'd done before and we showed him the board and he braked at the end. We had the place to ourselves. He braked, got to the end of the pit road and drove the wrong way down the pit road and said, well, that's it then, isn't it? <laughs> I said, well, you're going to do some more running and, you know, no, 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 that's it, I'm okay. He only wanted to race. He was, he was quite yeah. remarkable. Of uh, course, Derek was through the uh, uh, formula. Well, the earliest, really, was about 65, 66 with Derek. I went along sort of and helped as a gopher, really. And then it gradually grew you know, until Derek went off to Ferrari. And then uh, old Colonel Hender asked me if I'd run the team when we got the M10A from McLaren for Gethin. So, but, uh, yeah, Derek was special. Derek was the guy at the right place at the wrong time. Sure, I mean, the, but all three, you know, John Watson, Derek Bell, David Purley, all three had, had, had talent, they, didn't they? I mean, they had real, they were, they were quite special guys in their own different ways, weren't they? I mean, Derek with sports cars, John, you know, had some great Grand Prix, And David, on his day, was, was a fantastic driver, wasn't he? David was talented. He wasn't a top-line driver. No. I mean, being honest, he wasn't. Um, if he gave him a good car, yeah. he'd wring its neck. But if the car wasn't good, he didn't have the discipline to drive around the problem or yeah. try and help you get over the problem. Yeah. He, would, um, uh, he would just accept the fact that he wasn't going quick. Watty, for instance, was a different beast altogether. He, um, he was incredibly smooth. But, you know, if this car had a an ounce of understeer in it he'd rather be making coffee at home to be honest but he but he, he was phenomenal and uh, you know when he lost the championship finished second um that was all down to his, his shunt at uh, monza i think um if he hadn't had that he'd won the championship yeah tremendous driver pearly pearly was unbelievably brave though wasn't he yeah he was I mean, and I'm he used to i mean uh, the thing i've never forgotten he told me once about the, the, first, the first turn, the first right downhill right-hander at Rouen, that he used to scream into his helmet as he was turning into it. Yeah. And he said, because that's exactly what we used to do in Aden, you know, going over the top. So when you were saying about the extension of his yeah. army life, that, that makes absolute sense. And I think the, f the fact he won the Chimay road race in Belgium, was it three years on the trot? I mean, yeah. you know, that, that was a place for the... Yeah, for the, for the committed, wasn't it? Yeah, if, well, any, we, if anywhere was. We figured that they should have given the place to him. He'd won it yeah. that many times. But, um, yeah, he was, he was. He was ridiculously brave. But he wasn't a fool. He didn't do daft things, but mm. he was ridiculously brave. I mean, uh, unfortunately, the thing that killed him was an extension of that because once he'd packed up, he bought two Pitts aerobatic aircraft. Uh, one for him, one for a friend, and they shipped them back from the States. <coughs> and our workshop in those days used to be on the airfield at Black Refrigeration. And he hired an old boy who was pretty doddery to put them together. And the old boy used to come up and say, have you got a spanner? <laughs> got any of those plastic things, what tie things together? And I went, oh, fine, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I said to Pearls, hey, you sure about this bloke? Oh, yeah, yeah, he knows the job, he knows the job, he's no problem. And um, anyway, he fetched somebody down from the um, Philip Morris aerobatic team to fly it first. And the guy said, who built it? And he showed him, he said, I'm not flying it. And Pearls just jumped in it, took it off and stood it on its tail. And that was it. Then he decided he didn't know how to land it because the nose was so long. 
Um, <laughs> if you weren't careful, the, and the prop was huge, to give it its performance, it would dig in the ground. And it, he went round about, I don't know, 50 times before he realised if he kicked it sideways, he could then see and then just drop it in. That's the way he was. I mean, he was unbelievable. Actually, we should explain for, for some people who may be joining us today that he was in the parachute regiment, um, a soldier. Yeah, OK. Mike, um, there's so much to talk to you about because, as, as I said, you're, you know, you've had this extraordinary career, but can we just find out how it all started? I mean, how did you... I mean, you weren't born into motor racing in any way at all, were you? No, I was born into the licence trade. Yeah. My father had pub and I worked in that until I was about 18, 19. Then I was 21, I was in the Guinness Book of Records as the youngest licensee in the country, which you had to be 21 in those days. And I was licensee when I was 21 and a few days. And then I'd taken up rallying for myself, just club rallying and a little bit. Driving? Yeah. Were you any good? Uh, not good enough. I got very friendly with Roger Clark and sort of one stage with him that he used to have up at his farm convinced me that uh, I was wasting my money. Um, <laughs> so gave, gave that one up. And during that time, I'd, uh, I used to get, from the time I was eight, I used to jump on my bike and ride from Bognor up to uh, Goodwood. Never missed a club meeting, mm -hmm. never missed a thing. Always used to stand in the same place. I can look at photographs and this little dot, I can pick it out as me because <laughs> I used to be at the chicane where the two fences met, there I was. Um, and I used to love it. And uh, I was up there one day uh, when Derek had his Lotus 31 and he broke the lap record, 130.6 it was, I think, in those days. And yep. um, my brother-in-law used to work for the local Bogner Bugle or whatever it was called. <laughs> and... Um, I used to just pick up the sheets from the office and take them. He'd write a story around them, around what I'd said. And it was the only thing that picked up and he'd broken the lap record. And I happened to meet him in the pub in Pagham one night. And he said, oh, yeah, 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 great. And we became friendly. And I got involved with him then. That was about 65, 66. Amazing. That was pure chance just running into him in the pub. Yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah. It just shows that going to the pub's a good thing. <laughs> so, <laughs> and... Um, I, I was also, um, by then I'd given up the pub and I was working at a company called um, Hairspares. They weren't purveyors of wigs, they actually they did things for um, uh, cars, motor accessories, because in those days, you know, if you wanted an ashtray, it was an extra. And <laughs> yes. uh, radios were definitely well, extra. Or Paddy Hopkirk switch extensions via Mini, that kind of thing. You were the bloke <laughs> that bought those. <laughs> so <laughs> so we, we did all that. And... Um, through them, I got them to do all sorts of things. When Derek bought the terrible Lotus 41, he wanted it gold and black, and the spray shop did that for him, and then we gave him a bit of sponsorship, and that's really how I got involved with him. I mean, uh, Formula 3 back then was, apart from being incredibly exciting racing, it was bloody dangerous, wasn't it? I mean, you know, what do you remember about the, the, those, those races those days? I don't think they were dangerous. No? We didn't think so at the time. Anyway, you never do, do you? I mean, you well, don't no. really think it's dangerous. I, I talked to Chris Kraft about this a couple of years ago, and he, yeah. he, he said the 1967 Italian, 66, 67 yeah. Italian F3 Championship yeah. was dangerous. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. he, he said it was, it was terrifying. Yeah. I mean, you know, rewarding when he did well, but... Yeah, um, but yeah I mean, some of the tracks, I think, are the, you know, the Continental Circuit. Oh, yeah, yes, I think, yeah, I think it was more the yeah. fact that... Yeah. The yeah. Over there, I mean, I don't think it was yeah. so no, much the, in the UK. The but British circuits were pretty good by those standards of that day. Yeah. 
I mean, we'd invert, in, you know, we'd sort of managed to make more straw bales and stuff like that. It wasn't, and then Armco arrived. I mean, but um, yeah, I mean, some of the places like Chimay, Rouen, I mean, Rouen was unbelievable. I mean, fantastic place. I was there the day that uh, they had a massive shunt there. I think the three guys died there. Um, that's the Jean Luc Salomon. That's right, yes. Yeah. 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 Wonderful racing. I mean, it <coughs> the reason I said dangerous actually is because it, it was such close racing. I mean, the slipstreaming and the, you know, to be in the lead pack, you had to be good, didn't you? Yeah, it was. I mean, it was all different. I mean, it was the same in Formula Two. Anything at Hockenheim. I mean, when we used to go to Hockenheim, um, you used to spend more time in setup, in making sure that your mirrors were right because you had to be able to see without moving your head. Because uh, when there were 14 of you going down the straight, you wanted to know that the guy you were gonna zap out and slipstream had seen you. And if you did that, he knew he'd seen you, so he could do it. If you didn't, then he wasn't sure, so you just be able to move your eyes so that you could get the mirrors right. But it was, it was different, but it was tremendous racing. Let's, let's talk a bit about Peter Gethin uh, for two reasons. One, you had huge success with with Geth, and, and secondly, um, he, he's never, in my view, really ever been given his fair share of um, plaudits and credit for, for what he achieved. I, I, I don't know why. Would you agree with that? Um, probably not. Um, he he was good uh, when he ran, when we won the whatever it was the five thousand championship with the M10A we took that to the States and won a couple of races for that because we got so many points ahead in Britain we decided we'd go and conquer the States as well which was a bit of a mistake we did win races but it was hard going um, and uh, because he he was so closely linked for a long time to McLaren yeah I remember the first time he drove um, a Can-Am car it was a brand new car and neither Denny or Bruce could be there in the morning and uh, put Geth in it and out he went. And he kept coming back in and said, Jesus, unbelievable, unbelievable. It's like low, low flying. Oh, it's unbelievable. Denny arrived and we took the throttle stop out. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, he, he, was, um, he was very, very good. He was also a great guy. I mean... You know, you, you didn't spend long with him without having a laugh, did you? He was, he was a, a great character, Gethin. I had the pleasure of driving around the States with him with an old Ford estate car that we bought for, I think, 150 bucks in the rotten worst place in New York where all the dodgy car dealers were. That's all we could afford. And we were driving around the States in this thing, and we used to have about a quarter of oil in it every 100 miles. <laughs> And we were driving, we were driving from Paramus, New Jersey, Fred Opert's workshop, over to California, and we must have got stopped 15 times for speeding, and we'd pay our fine and carry on, and you'd, you know, it, 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 you'd be in a traffic jam, and he'd lean over and take the keys out of the car and chuck them out the window, and you had to get out and find them and fire it back up again. And I got stopped once, and I was doing a fine job. And the cop was saying to me. So, uh, where are you from? Oh, we're from England. Oh, yeah? Whereabouts in England? Oh, middle. Uh, uh, my daughter's in Oxford. Oh, really? Is she in university? Uh, yeah, she is. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah, we're from Oxford. Oh, right. What does she look like? 
Oh, she's small and dark. I think I know her. <laughs> this used to go on. And, um, you know, you get halfway through the thing and Kathy would lean across and say, Officer, don't listen to him. He's given that nonsense to everybody that stops us. And we've had 12 today. <laughs> but he was, he, was, he, was, he was good fun to be with. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's lots of very good stories. Some of them I can tell, some of them I can't. But, sure. Um, there was a little bit of little bit of Gerhard Berger in in Geth, I think. He seems as humour and yeah, he he was it, well, same attitude to a lot of things, really. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> no, Geth was um, was very special. He was he was special. He was very easily tipped. That was his problem. You know, you could walk up to Geth, and uh, I always remember when he would left us and he was driving for other people, and you could walk up to him and say, "God, Geth, when you were with us, I knew you were brilliant," but. Phew, Watching that car through there, it's all over the place. It's understeering, oversteering. Only someone like you could drive it. And you knew who he was driving for would come down 10 minutes later and said, you've been talking to Gethin. We're changing <laughs> springs. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he, he was, he was a very special, lovely man, beautiful man. You, you also ran Carlos Parche, didn't you? Yeah, And uh, we've races. never had anybody on a podcast who's... Who, who's um, Who's done that? I mean, was how, how was he a huge talent, Mike? Massive, massive, absolutely massive. Again, a lovely bloke who um, um, was very humble, but knew what he wanted. He wasn't a pushover, but blindingly quick. I mean, I think uh, if he'd been in the right place at the right time. I mean, I know that Bernie thought he was wonderful, and. Uh, he was. He was a great guy. Huge talent. We didn't do that much with him because we were running the old um, Formula Two Pygmies at the time. Yeah. And it was sponsored by a Brazilian bank, I think it was, who um, either ran out of money or forgot to send it. So, uh, <laughs> but yeah, Pacho was very special. You, you, Nigel, you watched him race, of course, didn't you? I, well, I watched him race a lot. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, and in fact, I remember it was just before the race of champions, I think, in '77 that he was he was killed in that in that, yeah. um, in that plane crash, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. yeah, yeah, that was that was. In fact, that was that was a terrible time because that was right after um, Tom Price had been killed. Yeah. So yeah, no, no, he, he was a lovely bloke. So you mentioned Bernie Bache. Bernie yeah. Ecclestone, Mike, and of course, some people, maybe understandably, actually, have kind of forgotten that, you know, he is deep down at heart a racer, a racing fan, and he, of course, had the Brabham team. And you've known him on and off all these years. Um, this is a bit of a, a, a flyer for you, but... Um, Thanks, Rob. <laughs> yeah. Do you, looking at Formula One today, we'll come to it a bit later, but um, do you think Bernie, you know, it's kind of he's had his time? What's your gut feeling about, about that now? It's election time. I'll probably give you a politician's answer, but um, I'm not close enough to it now to make a decision. Um, all I know is that uh, I was there when he first came along, and I know what Formula One was then, and what it is now. And without him, um, a lot of people wouldn't be where they are today. Sure. Um, hey, he's made mistakes, don't we all? Um, and I think uh, he on the basis of that he's been very good for yeah. all sorts of things i think a lot of what he does goes unnoticed 
I think in the age of um, uh, the internet, um, it's very easy for people to make their criticisms without knowing the full facts. Yeah. And he takes his fair share of that. Um, but he's a much, much more positive element to motorsport than negative by a long, long way. Mm. Interesting. Mm. Mm. Yeah, well, I mean, I would agree with that. Um, really, my only my beef is not is not with Bernie, it's with CVC. Yeah, well, like know, I, 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 as far as I'm concerned, you know, Bernie, as you say, has made it what it is, and he's got very rich along the way. Fair enough, you know, he did it. They don't do anything; they just take. But we can blame uh, and, Bernie and, for and bringing CVC in. Well, we can blame Bernie for bringing CVC in. Well, we course. certainly can. Yeah, absolutely, we certainly do that. But but the but the thing that, that you know upsets me more than anything is the way the heritage of Formula One is being lost because but I mean how many I don't know we're going to have six races in Europe this year. Not very now, many. Now Germany's gone, so it's a lot of the time Formula One is taking place in countries that couldn't care less about it. And Bernie has always said, "Oh well, it's on TV; it doesn't matter." It actually does matter. The fans feel that they a lot of fans feel that it's being Formula One is becoming distance from them because where the hell's you know wherever it is Qatar you know I think what's that got to do with Formula One you know we we could ask you Mike about it. we're jumping ahead slightly here and we'll go back again in a minute but I mean you you had the Onyx Formula One team and inside Formula One is a very different place from anywhere outside Formula One, isn't it? I mean, you're not actually thinking about whether you're giving value for money to the fans or whether it's accessible or not. You're, you're completely focused on the racing. Yeah, you are, but I think you do think about the fans yeah. um, because, you know, without them, there's no point being there. Um, and there's no point anybody uh, putting money into Formula One as a sponsor partner or anything like that unless it appeals to the public. I, what I do disagree with about Formula One now is I think some of the measures that have been taken to spice it up, so to speak, have been counterproductive. Yeah. I think um, it's wrong. Um, it's a part of what was there when we were doing it, you know, about 1066. <laughs> it was, um, you wanted a driver who could look after his tyres and, and smash his gearbox to bits and, yeah. you know... Today, it doesn't, it's not quite the same. There's so many um, electronic safety nets for them, mm. and they know that they've got you know, at least two tyre stops to make and all these sorts yeah. of things. Yeah. And I don't think it helps the fans at all, um, because it's very good if you're sitting opposite the pits, but they haven't got enough big uh, screens around the circuit to know who's gone in and who hasn't yeah. and where they've rejoined. And, so they've turned it into a television sport. Yeah. Do you feel that it's, it, to me, one of the problems with it, and, and people do say this, is it's become so complicated. Yeah, it is. Rules spawn more rules, and, and, they, and they can't keep track of it. People are sort of, what are engine tokens? And, and so why has he got more engine tokens than... than Mercedes or whatever, uh, it's, 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 it's not a, it's, it just seems to me year by year it becomes ever more complicated. And Brundle actually was saying this, the same thing, just in terms of the number of things they have to explain 
before they start. I mean, I, I actually uh, like some of the engineering complexity, some of it, but I think it's gone, it's, it's become pointlessly complex in so mm. many ways now that it's just, it, and, you know, unless you are actually on the inside, it, 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 it can be baffling. I've always thought that uh, if you look at it, it's, it's really, it's a reflection of modern life because everybody tries to please everybody. Yeah. And... Um, it's the same with governments and everything, you know. Um, and you end up with a situation where you end up pleasing nobody. <laughs> um, and I, I think that that's what's happened to Formula One. They've tried so many remedies to fix something that fundamentally wasn't broken. Mm. Um, <clears throat> and the other thing, but the other thing about the complexity of the modern rule book is that it's also very restrictive. And a lot of the stuff that we saw during the seventies and eighties, whether it's sliding skirts or Brabham fan cars or six-wheel Tyrrells. You know, nowadays, everything, yeah. 10 minutes after the regulations come out, the science of the wind tunnel dictates everything looks the same, and it's just, it doesn't have the same engineering fascination, for me at least. No, I mean, when you see people like Adrian Newey, who is effectively bored with it, because QED, the regulations yes. determine what he can do, and he's got a mind that is racing, you know, 20 years ahead of what's there now, it's so frustrating for him. Mm. It really is. Um, so, yeah, I think you're right. Can, I mean, so as you brought up the subject, Rob, of the uh, Onyx Formula One team, one question I have to ask: Jean-Pierre Van Rossum, Moneytron, <laughs> your sponsor. You beat me to it. <laughs> d discuss. <laughs> well, funnily enough, when we did our launch um, at the Hippodrome in London, Nigel described it as the most tasteless thing he'd ever seen in his <laughs> life. <laughs> Is that the car or the Lord? I'm sorry, I've forgotten that. <laughs> On reflection, he was probably right. But at the time, I was sorely, sorely hurt by the fact that a journalist should be discussing taste. <laughs> hey, now's your chance to get right back in him. But, um, and also, we'd worked all night to get the car there. And uh, we took it off the trailer and put it outside prior to bringing it through the side door. And when I went back out, there was some jobs worth had clamped it. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I do have a piece of video, because we had a film crew there, of me arguing with this jobs worth to get the clamp taken up so that we could take it in to put it on the lift. Um, it's a fabulous picture. And there's this jobs worth stood there and I'm poking him in the chest. <laughs> You've got to let it go, mate. He should have left it. We'd have probably been quicker. So, um, <laughs> so we... Um, would you like to tell us it was a little a bit about the launch? Well, I, mean, okay. yeah. I, I can't remember a great deal about it. I mean, I, in well, fact, clearly in you fact, were. Well, <laughs> I mean, Mike, Mike, Mike has reminded me what I said at the time, but I mean, it's a, it's just a long time ago, and I, I, yeah. can't, I can't remember much clear detail. I do remember thinking, I must say, and I think a lot of people thought the same thing from the outset, Moneytron, yeah. that doesn't sound... Kosher just does not sound well. Also, also we had on the side of the car an emblem, which was Petit Lou, which was a, a baby clothing company, which um, was owned by his lady, and uh, <laughs> it looked uncannily like a pound sign. And of course, <laughs> but, you know, so, so people had money troll on it, and they thought, "Oh, how gross it's got! It's got this pound sign on the side." He was, funnily enough. A very, he was a clever guy. He was a professor of economics at Louvain University. That's how he started out. And he invented this computer program was, which was predictive. So that if the President of the United States got shot, 
he predicted what would happen to the price of oil and the price of gold and all this. And he sold the system to banks for a lot of money. I mean, I think he was charging about five million a pop at the time. And he got it going quite well. And he had a lot of very heavy-hitting investors uh, involved in it. And um, that's how... But he had a, a, an absolute love of cars. I mean, I could do this whole programme with Van Rossum stories, but he, he was absolutely unique. Um, those of you who have obviously never seen the pictures, he had hair down to over his shoulders. Well, and it also looked as though his hair probably could lubricate a car. He, he, oh, yeah. he seemed never to wash it. it was <laughs> right, I yeah, yeah. But he... I mean, uh, some of the funny ones, we... We were at um, Rickard and we picked up our first points there. I think we had a fifth um, with Stefan. And um, at the time, Porsche were talking about coming back with what was effectively two of their V6 turbo engines put together with a central power takeoff and a long, heavy lump it was. Anyway, they came and saw us and Bernie fetched them down and said, look, this is where you want to be and all this. So off we go to Vysak and meet them all and uh, Van Rossum says uh, oh, I will come to the meeting this is very important so yeah fine meet you there no 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 I will fly over in the jet to Gatwick and pick you up good so he arrives long hair onto his shoulders and a suit on because he always wear tracksuit bottoms and racing boots and uh, so <laughs> so he he turned up and uh, we jumped on the plane and the young lady said um Right, um, would you like anything to eat? And he said, oh, what have you got? So she said, uh, so unfortunately he decided on an egg mayonnaise baguette, which when he bit into it, put egg mayonnaise all down his suit, all down his <laughs> shirt, in his hair, and he was pulling it out of his hair and eating it. And so <laughs> we, we arrive at Porsche, and uh, long story, Anyway, in the, in the end, the deal was agreed. And as we leave, absolute confidentiality. Nobody must say anything until it's done and da-da-da-da-da. Yeah, 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 we'll have a joint press release. But next morning, I got a phone call from Pierre Bonfleet, who said, um, oh, you've got Porsche. I said, pardon? <laughs> <laughs> he said, yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, well, no, I don't know anything about it. Well, he was on television last night <laughs> talking about it. So, of course, swiftly followed by a phone call from... Porsche. <laughs> he wanted nothing more to do with it. So I rang him and said, Porsche will withdraw because of your television uh, appearance. He said, uh, oh, this was not me. I said, excuse me. Not doing what he looked like. I subsequently got a phone call in the evening to say, um, your man has um, made the news down here. I said, oh, what's he done now? For crying out loud. He said, um, he drove his Porsche down to the main square and set fire to it. <laughs> Showed him. <laughs> so yeah, he was. He was, <laughs> he was very special. I always remember. Always remember. He <laughs> he said we went down there one day and there was Jenks, Alan Jenkins and I, and uh, he sat there and he said, um, "I want this to be a big team. I want us to have our own test track. I want us to have our own wind tunnels and our own carbon factory and everything." Do the work. So I go out and I go up and see the Earl of March and agreed a bit of land we could lease to put a factory on. I thought, oh, it's a nice little test circuit. Uh, got all the quotes in for all the bits he wanted and that was it. But coming up to the meeting they were having with him, I had a row because there was a payment late with him. So I was pretty annoyed with him. And 
we got on the plane to go out there and I said to Jenks and Joe Chamberlain was with me, I said, uh, listen, if he goes on any more about Fanta, because he used to drink gallons of Fanta, cans and cans of it. He used to have a big, in his office, wooden cabinet, one of which was a fridge, and it was full of Fanta. I said, if he offers me a Fanta today, I'm going to tell him where to stick it. So we go in, and he sits down, well, how's it going? I said, well, we've got the factory on this side, and we've got the wind tunnel, and we've got the thing, and great, do it all. Would anybody like a Fanta? <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> Can I have two? Um, so <laughs> yeah, he was, he was pretty special. He did, Bernie, Bernie wasn't keen on him. And I, I, I mentioned him in, just in passing to Bernie four or five years ago, and Bernie just went, went horrible bastard. <laughs> <laughs> well, I always remember we went to the Belgian Grand Prix, which obviously was the important one for him. For Van Rossum. And um, he'd gone to press with, you know, Belgium's biggest newspaper, whatever that is. And um, he'd said what he wanted to say by denial. So he said, I want you to know now, I never said Jean-Marie Belest was a Nazi. I never said that. I never, ever said that Bernie Eccleston was the Mafia. Ever. <laughs> So, I arrived not knowing this, and Herbie Blash has come out, he said, uh, Bernie wants to see you, so, oh, fine, what's this? So, I thought the truck was too long, or the canopy was dirty, or whatever. Anyway, Bernie told me the story. He said, get him up here. So I said, right, okay, fine. So anyway, I just said, Bernie wants to see you. Oh, good, good. So he walked up, and Ben Rossum stood in front of him, and... <laughs> he looked at him and said, uh, listen you, I've seen them come, I've seen them go, and I'm not frightened of the dark. Now go away, or words to that effect. <laughs> <laughs> he used to have about eight very beautiful models at every race, and he had them equipped with clothing from whoever the best designer was at the time, all in the team's colours. Um, I think we were in Detroit and Bernie came down the pit road and he said, get all those birds out of this place, they're doing my head in. So we had to <laughs> dispatch them. <laughs> oh boy. What happened to him, Mike? What happened to Van Rossum? Well, <clears throat> he eventually, um, they found out that he'd been embezzling money. Now, there's a surprise. Looked like a straight guy to me. So... <laughs> so... He, um, they tried to indict him and put him away, but apparently if you're an MP in Belgium at that time, you couldn't be charged with a civil matter. So he stood for Parliament, and strangely he offered everybody free houses, free cars, free everything, and he got elected. It was absolutely amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so he did two years of that, and the story goes that... Uh, when the King of Belgium was opening Parliament, he jumped up and shouted, Vive la République, and they arrested him. <laughs> he, went to, <laughs> he went to prison for three years. I don't know where he is now. Oh, boy. <laughs> I tell you, only Formula One could come out of this. Um, I think we, might, we, can't let the, uh, we can't let this pass, Mike, without staying in Belgium for a couple of minutes, because it was in Belgium that David Purley had that absolutely fantastic Grand Prix where... Where um, I think it's fair to say he found himself in the lead. Um, 
and it'd be really nice to hear, you know, from you straight from the horse's mouth, as it were, how all that came about, because um, he really shouldn't have been leading the race, should he? I mean, and there were only about three of you in the pits, weren't there? Or something? I think that basically you're doubting the sort of brilliance of the technical decisions I made. Okay, basically. well, uh, hands up. <laughs> it started wet. And we went out on wets just like everybody else. And uh, after about 10 laps, it dried out. And uh, there were three of us in the whole team and we figured that it looked a bit cloudy it might rain again and we figured that it would take us about three and a half weeks to change the tires so <laughs> we just kept going and everybody came in and we were leading and um a bit of an altercation afterwards with nicky because he held nicky up for quite a long time and um but that was david he just said to me afterwards he said uh, who's the guy in the red car with the red helmet <laughs> <laughs> Oh, so it was Nicky Lauder in a Ferrari. Oh, all oh, right. I think he might be a bit of sister. So I'm fine. Okay. So we go. Anyway, Nicky came up to interview him with about 500 journalists, and there was a bit of finger pointing, which Pearlie responded to fairly robustly. And uh, <laughs> but they became very, very good friends afterwards. Very good Did friends. They? Yeah, no, very good friends. We but we had to put a rabbit on the side of the well, car. Well, I was going to say, I remember that. Yeah. yeah Nicky yeah, yeah. said that uh, we were. Um, they shouldn't allow rabbits in races, and uh, Pearlie sort of called him the rat, and that's where it kind of stuck. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. So that's where it all came from. But uh, uh, I know when David had his accident at Silverstone, Nicky was on it every day. Is he all right? Is there anything we can do? Really? You know, he, yeah, he was great, really good, fantastic. I um, don't want to go over the grizzly bits, but I mean, just going back, I mean, what was that like? I mean, looking back, the I mean, Silverstone '77. I mean, a tiny team all built around one guy, he was the hub of the team, you're all friends. I mean, how did you all cope with that? Uh, at the time, I mean, all the friendship bit and small team goes out the wall. Um, Brian Hinton came in and he stopped at our pit and he said, he's had a big one, and he's a bad one out the back. So <coughs> we uh, dashed off and got our support vehicle, which was a Mark One Cortina, um, a state wagon. <laughs> Oh, well, a proper one. <laughs> Big budget. And uh, we threw a few tools in the back and drove out there and uh, the, was surrounded by escape um, rescue vehicles. And uh, as we ran around the corner, Greg Field, who was working with me at the time, he collapsed. He just fell on the floor. I mean, the car was just... The two roll hoops, the front and the rear, were so close together, his head was sideways in them. And uh, when we got there, I was amazed he was still alive. Mm. And I mean, if there's, I mean, we all know he recovered and went back, but it was terrifying at the time. We thought we'd lost him. And mm. um, he, I'll always remember the doctor working on him said, I'm losing him, I'm losing him. You're going to have to keep him interested. Talk to him. So I said, what have you done? And he said, brakes didn't work. I said, that's nonsense. I can see skid marks right up the road. You've wrecked our weekend. And we were having this huge argument. And I've always thought to this day, people who didn't know what were going on yeah. thinking, what a heartless piece of work that bloke is. But it kept him going. You were keeping him alive. Yeah, yeah. While, we, while we got him in the ambulance. And um, he, in the ambulance, he said to me, uh, can you get the car ready for tomorrow? And I said, well, if you can get ready, I'll be ready. Don't worry <laughs> about it. Um, but yeah, it was, it was pretty horrific. I, uh, did, I ha did happen to see that accident. Yeah. 
really like believing or not. And it was, it was one of those that you just literally assumed instantly yeah. that's not survivable. No. So, and I'll never know no. to this day how, you know, how he did. His old man, Charlie, who, you know, he was a fishmonger. He made good by making fridges. He made a fridge. He used to pick up fridges, um, fish from Bognor Railway Station, take it on a trades bike. Then he had such a big ground, he needed a refrigerator. So he built one and he sold one to the local butcher. And that's how Lake Refrigeration started. And he, I rang him, he was playing golf. I said, uh, Charlie, David's had a massive shunt. He said, oh, has he? Oh, right. Um, well, I'm on the 11th. He said, you're a good man, you'll take care of everything. Oh, and by the way, here's my telephone credit card number, use that, don't keep putting money in the things, no mobiles in those days. So, um, I kept ringing him, it was after about a week, I said, are you coming up to see him? And he said, yeah, yeah, I'll bring his mother up. So, fine, okay, well, per Pearlie's laying in bed, and he's got a tube in his throat, and his head is the size of a big melon but black and uh, as we were walking into the, this room I've said to Charlie look Charlie it's not a pretty sight so be prepared for a shock and he turned around and said to his wife there you are Joyce don't be doing anything silly so right we walked in as we opened the door Charlie collapsed on the floor <laughs> <laughs> Mrs Pearlie was great but, uh, but yeah, it was a it was a bad bad day. The, but, the best uh, the best thing is that we can laugh about it today, isn't it? Because the guy was, I mean, you know, a lot of men wouldn't have survived that. He was tough as hell, and he was fit. He was very very fit, David Purley, wasn't he? Oh, he was. He used to run eight nine miles every day, and yeah, he used to have amazing. his Irish wolfhound, which used to go with him. You know, he used to say, come on, Wolf, we'll go running. And I think Wolf used to try to get back in his basket. He didn't want anything to do with it. But, but he, um, yeah, I mean, he was remarkably fit and remarkably determined. I mean, didn't matter what you did with him, whether you were, you know, playing yeah. tiddlywinks, yeah. he had to win. Yeah. Yeah. He, was, he, was very, he was a unique character. He had no understanding of, um, he didn't really want to understand the incident. He'd have been hopeless in Formula One today because he yeah. couldn't understand what it was about. I mean, um, he and James together were a, a win double. I mean, you know, we all got on the bumper cars at Zandvoort and got chased out of the fair by the fairground <laughs> people <laughs> trying to turn them over. <laughs> they were quite similar characters, actually, weren't they, in some ways? The, the other thing about him was that he... he uh, I remember doing an interview with him in the sort of mid-70s, mid not very long before the accident, actually, and he's about the only racing driver I can ever remember speaking to, apart from Sterling, who actually believed it should be dangerous. Yeah, I mean, he, he truly did. I mean, he yeah. was, he was, he was. Even then, he was very concerned about the sort of milk and water circuits yes. that were being used, and yeah, no, places like Shimei, you know, were falling yeah. into. No, he did. He was. He was, he was that way. He thought that, you know, it, it was something that he was doing. But he, he wanted that. I mean, you know, he'd been in the powers and he jumped out and his parachute failed to open. And he rode down on the top of another parachute when he broke his, the other bloke's shoulder and his leg. But he was always looking for a thrill. He loved things that were right mm -hmm. on the edge. Hence, he went up, you know, and took up aerobatic flying. But uh, he was a quite remarkable character. I mean, he really was. He was. I got to know James from when we were doing the Philip Morris 
driver promotion thing, the World Championship team. And you're right, there were a lot of similarities. Actually, which brings us on, and we are jumping about here, but we have to because it's five decades. But, But talking about James and Marlborough brings us to Stefano Modena. Um, you can't really imagine a more different person to David Purley than Stefano Modena, really. But um, he, apart from bringing you, the te- you and the team, huge success and, and you bringing him his success, I mean, he won the Formula 3000 championship. And everybody said at the time, Mike, you know, this guy. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com I something special. This guy's going to be world champion. This guy's going to take Formula One to pieces. And why didn't he? What, what, what happened there? Um... Two reasons, really. After he won the Formula 3000 championship, uh, which was 87, during 88, we decided we were going to build a Formula 1 car. And we had started on it. And at that time, I was talking to Philip Morris, and they were looking to have what really amounted to what today is called a junior team. Mm. And it was going to run in gold and white for Marlboro Lights as opposed to red and white. And we were quite well advanced with the car, and obviously we were going to take Modena and one of the other guys out of this um, young driver scheme, which, to coin a well-used phrase, was a victim of its own success because we produced so many good drivers. I mean, in 87, every championship we had a driver in, we won the championship. And um, Modena was amongst them. And um, we were going to do that. Well, halfway through it, uh, America decided they didn't want to do it. We had a car half finished, so we had to stop that and um, aim for 89, which left Modena at a bit of a 
loose end and he ended up doing Eurobrun and all sorts of things. Yeah. It was the only place to go. His other bit of bad luck was that at the end of 87, Bernie rang up and said, this guy, modern, is he any good? And I said, yeah, I think he is. I think he's exceptional, which he was. Um, I know Senna rated him very highly. I talked to Senna at Spa about him and he said, yeah, because they raced against one another a lot in carts. Mm. And Modern had a good record against him and Ayrton said, yeah, this guy will be special. And um, <clears throat> so our chance with him had gone in 88 and we were then flapping around to try and get the car built. And Stefano had to go off and do what he had to do. The bit of bad luck was the end of 87. Bernie had called up and said, is he any good? And I said, yeah, I think he is. I think he's exceptional. And he said, right, get him down to Australia. I'll run him there. And he, he went down there. He never fitted in the car. He was in big trouble with that. Uh, he wasn't particularly big, but he couldn't get comfortable in the car. I think he qualified reasonably well. I think he was about 11th or something. Mm. But in morning warm-up, he's more time in the car. I think he was in the top four or five. But I think after halfway through the race, his feet went to sleep and he, he retired. Uh, had Bernie not decided at that point to sell Brabham's, he would have been at Brabham's the next year. Yeah. Right place at the right time again or wrong place. At, yeah, 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 yeah. And we've all seen hundreds of drivers. Yeah, yeah. You know, he's not the only one that suffered that Absolutely. way. <coughs> I was going to ask actually, Mark, because I mean, you... you you know, I first met you in sort of 83, 84 when you were running the... 1883, was it? 18, yeah. <clears throat> and, you know, you had loads and loads of good young drivers who pa passed through the system. Yeah. I mean, who, apart from Stefano, who are the others that you felt could, should have made it, but didn't ultimately? Well, one that very definitely did make it was James and I, the way this scheme used to work, all the territories from Marlborough, because what happened was, in the beginning... You'd have 18 Italian drivers sponsored by Marlborough and 23 Frenchmen, but nobody from anywhere else because there was any budget. So I convinced them that they should take a percentage of everybody's budget, put it in a pool, and then we'd have a, a thing at the beginning of the year. So guys who'd done Formula 4 could run in with Dick Bennett's in Formula 3 at a test day, and we'd make a decision. There'd be about five of each of them, and they'd all get a set number of laps and tyres to make the decision. <coughs> so... The scheme was quite well set up. They bought into it and it was quite well set up. And through that became one that was very successful was Mika. Yeah. Um, and the story that I don't think has been told, which is true, James and I were sitting in the office in Chiswick. We had a day of going through these long forms that uh, the territories had to send in, ticking off numbers out of 10 why this should be the guy that should be supported. And um, we'd finished, it was seven o'clock, and James said, come on, mate, time to go and have a pint. So fine, we got up to go out, and as we were walking out through the secretary's office, there was another one of these forms on the desk, and I said, what's that one? He said, I don't know, come on, let's go and have a pint, let's have a look. <laughs> yeah, we ought to give him a test. That was Mika Hackenham. That's how <laughs> close it came to not helping. Whoa. But Mika came along, McNish, Pirro, Dalmas, they all came through the scheme. Um, and it worked very well. Um, but I mean, who, who are the other guys, I mean, from that lot, who are the ones that you really rated, you felt? I mean, obviously, Modena could have made it with a, you know, had the wind been blowing in a different well, direction. Obviously, Hakkinen, McNish. McNish was underrated. Again, wrong place, wrong time. Um, you know, we took him, we had a few races with him in 3000. In 92. Yeah, when he was test driver at McLaren. And uh, I'd known Alan for a long time, and his father. And I think as 
turned out he's he's a very bright, clever guy mm. and a good driver, a tremendous team player. Yeah. Um, Piro, obviously, um, definitely. I had Piro for three years in Formula yeah. 2 and Formula 3000. Um, never, I, mean, I love him dearly, but uh, he was never top 10 material, but a good driver. I mean, you know, he, we're talking fractions here. You, yeah. you know, anybody, it doesn't matter who they are, if they get into Formula 1 through ability, they're a good driver. And the difference between being a good driver and... Uh, an exceptional driver. It's, I mean, you can see it. The good ones are always 10 metres ahead of the car and the bad ones are 30 metres behind, behind it, yeah, sorting yeah. out what's already happened. And then there's Beppe Gabbiani. Yeah. We should, really, should we give Beppe a mention? Do you think? I think well, we I, I was going to a few, weren't, but I'm, I'm glad you brought the subject up. Because, I mean, uh, before we started recording, I, I do remember Enna 1984, um, Thierry Tassan was your regular driver. He was often in the spa 24 hours and Beppe stood in. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure that he, he busted drive shaft doing a practice start from the end of the pit lane in the race car. The mechanic stuck him in the spare where he pulled him. He went to the end of the pit lane, did a practice start, and bust another drive shaft. And I'm fairly sure that happened. No, I, don't, I, don't think that, that, I don't think that was us because he did a whole season with us. In, in 83, he was with you. Yeah, in that's a, right, yes. But in 84, he suffered Thierry. I do remember that happening. Yeah. He, is a, um, he is a journalist. You <laughs> know, I, mean, but, uh, I wouldn't make anything up. No, um, could have, no. But yeah, he just I've did one noticed. race with, with, for you in 84, so when, when Tassan wasn't there. No. And I just remember he didn't actually do the race because he was too busy breaking drive shaft. Well, he probably, probably right. I mean, I can't remember that. But he was, he was special, again, in a, in a very, very different way. Um, He's totally, totally laid back, and it was just about the time that the headsets had come in, and we were running, um, what's his name, um, Scott, um, young English guy, Beppe Gabbiani, and Tassan. And I went around one day, it's just before the start, and I said, uh, what do you listen to, Scotty? Well, Land of Hope and Glory. <laughs> oh, fine. And I said, oh, right, what about, what about you, uh, Terry? What do you got on? Oh, the Carpenters, they're very good. <laughs> oh, right, okay, good, good. <laughs> Beppy, what do you got? Black Sabbath. <laughs> <laughs> and you would, you'd be on the grid with him, and, it, you know, they'd done the warm-up lap, and you'd be sitting there, and he'd be going, the lady in the third row, she's showing her knickers. He <laughs> <laughs> um, was very special. I'll always remember he'd had the year before with Maurer, and it had been yeah. pretty unsuccessful. And when he won the first race, at uh, first race of the season, um, <coughs> as he crossed the line at Silverstone, he veered towards the pit wall, and I thought, oh, a celebration, but it wasn't. He was giving rude signs to Willie Maurer as he <laughs> went by. <laughs> <laughs> but he was, he was talented. Uh, Peter Gethin, who was engineering him at the time, actually went on to handle his management for a while. Hmm. But he was, um, he was definitely uh, very, very... He's an interesting guy. Uh, we haven't... We haven't um, inf oddly, we have answered a lot of our readers' questions. Um, just without actually asking them. Without actually <laughs> asking, asking them. So, um, uh, but we, I'd like to take one from Andy Gearing, um, just to change the pace a little bit, Mike. Um, he, he's asking, given the current restrictions, do you think it's even remotely viable to enter a new team into Formula One these days and enjoy any kind of success? 
Um, the only way you can do it is if you're somebody like Haas, who has the money. I mean, the raw material of motor racing has always been, but even more so than now, is money. You know, it would, you know, you know, when RD took over McLaren, um, if he hadn't been so good at finding sponsors and making, giving them what they wanted, McLaren's wouldn't be what it is today. It was because he had the money to spend to do it. Ferrari have always been in that situation. If somebody came in, and you know, let's not mess about, lots of big companies have come in, Toyota, spent a fortune and not made it so it's not just a case of the money you've got to and it takes time to put the ingredients together i mean red bull fantastic they didn't come in and blitz the world they had lots of money you've got to put all the bit all the infrastructure in place and that goes from everything from not just designers but you know people who look after the factory and it's and that takes time that's three or four year project and someone's got to be prepared to put up that level of investment for three or four years i think for people to come in <clears throat> and um try and do it on a, a shoestring budget particularly as you know you're not getting any money from um uh, the organizers uh for a couple of years if you're lucky um it's very, very difficult. And I, I, in answer to the question, without money, definitely not. With money, it's still very difficult. I was going to say, I mean, I mean Red Bull, yes, they did have money, mm. but they made a success of something that the Ford Motor Company, who also have money, yeah. failed. Yeah. But the reason they did it was they had people involved who could identify the ingredients to the cake. If you come into it totally cold, and you don't have people who know the right ingredients, it's going to take you longer. And I think in Toyota's case, um, they went at it and they went outside of Formula One, effectively, initially, to get what they want. The most important year uh, for somebody trying to do it is the first year. That's when you put down the foundations on which the whole project is built. And if you get that wrong, so if you were doing it, you'd probably spend two or three years drawing the plan of how you're going to do it, trying to recruit the people you wanted before you actually did it. It's no good getting in there and then saying, Jesus, this is harder than I thought it was. Throw more money at it. Mm. Um, Mike, another question from Matt, who says, um, he he's quotes Derek Bell, actually, uh, as, as, as being a supporter of the view that there are just too many open-wheeler single-seater series and there aren't enough seats further down the line for all the guys, even even some of the quick ones. Do you think do you think that's true? Do you think that it's too much skewed to everything is too much skewed to towards getting to Formula One? Because a lot of really good guys now are making a good living in the World Endurance Championship. Yeah, but I think you see, um that's been a hobby horse of mine for a long time, since there have been this plethora of um single seater formulas. Because there is a finite amount of money that's available for motor racing. If you're trying to spread that over 20 different championships, nobody's getting much money, so nobody can do a proper job, and the whole thing is self-defeating. I think that um, there should be a limit on how many national single-seater championships there are, and yeah. definitely international yeah. championships. And of course, we've got the new FIA Formula 2 championship coming up, which we really need to go with GP2 and Renault 3.5 and GP3. Yeah, you and you and can't have enough formulas. <laughs> 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 and and with, a, with a diminishing number of Formula One cars to, uh, yeah. Formula One teams to aim at. Yeah. So. Really? Okay. I mean, it's one more question from, a, from one of our um, 
loyal motorsport readers. Um, and this one comes from Daniel Smith. And Daniel, uh, Mike, wants to know, uh, this is about Stefan Johansson. We, we all like Stefan, don't we? Um, how good was Stefan's third place drive at Estoril in 1989? And obviously, Daniel remembers this in particular, but can you That was when he was on the, just about on the rims, wasn't he? Yeah. The, yeah. yeah. I mean, that again is, um, yeah. it was a good drive. He'd, I mean, in real terms, uh, without a couple of things, he'd have probably finished seventh or eighth. Um, we had the Mansell, was it Mansell Senna taking one another out, yeah. um, which moved us up. And then the other one was that uh, Prost came in very early for a tyre change. And while we were having a discussion about what we thought we should do, he'd done two laps. But we noticed the second lap was as slow as the lap that he'd done just before he put the tyres on. The first lap was quick, second one was back where he was. And we said, let's leave it and take a chance on it. And he just kept going, so he didn't stop. And um, he ended up being third. But it was a good drive, a very good drive. Um, he was really, really hacked off because it was the first time for a long time he'd been on the podium and he ran out of fuel on the slowing down laps. <laughs> <laughs> so he didn't get out. I mean, we were on a tight budget. Fuel was expensive. Um, but, uh, yeah. I presume no, by then you did, you did have enough people to change the tyres by then. Yes, <coughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we got, we got away from spoons and had proper <laughs> levers. But no, it was, um, it, was, um, it was just literally, look, he's gone there. And funnily enough, Stefan did, I think it was the, I mean, people can check the records, but it was in the top half dozen fastest laps in the race, two laps from the end. On the tyres that were knackered, two years old. Yeah, yeah. It, mu it must be it must be incredibly satisfying for somebody like you, because people always talk about the drivers. Understandably, I mean, it's the fans, you know, love the drivers. But if you if you manage a race like that, and obviously the fuel was pretty carefully managed, as you ran out <laughs> one half a lap after the finish, it must be incredibly satisfying that to get to the end and think, you know, we got everything right. Um. I think you can only say that when you win. Right. Um, third place was fantastic for us as a small team. You've got to remember in those days, I mean, Nigel will remember, but I think at some races you had 42 cars turn up. We were, you know, we were... You're right. I mean, it yeah, is, well, it's almost beyond belief now, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. We had 42 cars. Yeah. 12 of us used to go and try and pre-qualify in the morning between 7.30 and 8. And if you didn't get through as one of the top four... You packed your van and went home. Um, well, in fact, that's what, D what David was doing when he when he when he had his accident, wasn't yes, it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, and that's the way it was. Um, so it was incredibly difficult to get into the race. But if you got through, you generally found you qualified somewhere between twelfth and sixteenth because mm. you were quicker than the people that were in there by right. Mm. Um, so yeah, I mean, with Stefan, I mean, that's one of the the better stories as well. We uh, we're doing the Canadian Grand Prix. And uh, a lot of my stories revolve around pit stops and our inability to manage them. But anyway, um, we, Stefan came in for tyres. And uh, the guy on the paddle on the front waved him out. <laughs> and the guy with the gun hadn't finished. So he let go of the gun as the car went. The weight of the gun took it under the wing, which ripped the gun off. 
Um, but unfortunately, he took half the gantry with him. Oh, yes. And Stefan, to this day, says that he pulled out, went down the pit road, and he knew that behind him, because his place was, was Prost, and I think it was Burger. And he said, I did a whole lap thinking, I'm going pretty well. Neither of those guys have overtaken me. And on the back, he's got this <laughs> gantry swinging from side to side. So we got over that one. We got him in, took all that off, and sent him out. And we had an umbrella, no pit, uh, part, no pit purchase in those days. We had an umbrella. And unfortunately, the wind got under, and it hovered over the circuit for about five minutes. Unfortunately, it flew back to where I could... From that day, Bernie banned um umbrellas. Yeah. <laughs> we oh, weren't quite serious, you know. <laughs> Great. Um, let's come a little bit nearer the present time. Um, you've been touring car racing, of course, um, with uh, Ford, and that was a that, that was actually a really really interesting project because that was a, a gas-powered engine. Yeah, gas. in fact, if we want to uh, give the sponsor a bit of a mission. Yeah, so how did, tell, me, tell us how you got into all that. Well, basically, um, Tom Onslow Cole, his father had a business that was converting petrol cars to gas cars. Right. Uh, he knew someone at Calla, and I discussed with them, with his father, the opportunity of them sponsoring us, and they said, only if you can run Calagas. And we <laughs> said, yeah, okay, fine, no problem. So he looks into it, and... So I discussed it with Alan Gow, and previous gas cars had been pretty inefficient and pretty useless. So we had a look at it, and in the past, everybody um, injected it as a gas. And we decided we'd inject it as a liquid. Right. Uh, so we had some special tanks made in Australia, and um, Calla made the gas for us. And it took us a little while to get it to work, but once it worked, it was unbelievable. Um, I can say now because it's all over and well, they've been banned but um, huh. when we first ran the engine <coughs> Dave Mountain at Mount Tune rang me up and he said because I'm thinking to myself oh, what sort of a chance have you taken here so David rang me and said uh, I think we've got a problem and I said oh right okay what is it he said, well, we've just run one of these things on the dyno for the first time and we've not optimised it or changed anything yet. Bearing in mind that a good um, engine in those days was producing 320 horsepower. He said, uh, we've just seen 370. Yeah. Well, I said, ah, right, OK, well, get on and optimise it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so he did. And uh, at one stage, we did actually have to pull them back but at one stage we had over 400 horsepower out of the thing wow. and what was happening was because the gas was going in absolutely freezing cold it was expanding I've forgotten how many times but it was enormous mm. and the detonation was pretty expi pretty exciting and the thing was just it was I mean they could spin wheels up to sixth gear I mean it was it was so powerful but it was a very very interesting project um, so uh, I think had we carried on another year um, it would have uh, been even better but they, they cancelled the idea of it and then it was stopped you couldn't have done it with anything more serious than touring cars because refuelling you had to take the whole tank out put another tank in so for a one start race it was okay well they, well, they changed cars in Formula E for heaven's sake yeah exactly <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, that that was that was a fantastic, fantastic. Well, I was going to call it exper. I guess it was an experiment in a way to begin with, wasn't it? But it was very successful and good for Ford. I mean, it had been done before. It wasn't really. I mean, Ford didn't. I mean, to be honest, Ford never really had a great enthusiasm for right. touring cars uh, in Britain. Uh, but uh, it wasn't great for them because they didn't have a gas-powered car. So it had to be an aftermarket addition to it. And they were working very hard on uh, hybrids at the time, so it really didn't make too much sense to them. Having forged the path you had forged through Formula 5000, Formula 2, Formula Atlantic, up to Formula 1, etc., I mean, how did you find the touring car arena? Did Did you get the same buzz from racing there? No, the only thing that I got the same buzz from uh, to doing uh, single-seater racing... Sports either, cars, maybe? Sports cars, yeah. yeah. I mean, I didn't want to do it when I was looking at it, you know, like all single-seater people, you know, when we were doing Formula 3000 or Formula 2 or Formula 1. I used to think it was for the old, you know, it was motor racing's answer to help the aged. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> that's how I used to view it. And um, we... Um, we got involved with um, Stefan, with an American group, who wanted to buy a, an Audi and run it, and we managed to get some money from Golf. And from that moment onwards, I was hooked on it. Mm. It's great. It is fantastic. And if you look at it now, outside of um, Formula One, it's the only place where the drivers and teams are actually getting proper money. Yeah. And it's very exciting at the moment. I think it is. I mean, you know, before I'd done it, I thought, well, it was, you know, literally in the old saying, going about as slowly as possible to win. But it's not. They're flat on it from start to finish. And the cars now are very complex. There's more technical freedom, which is... Yes, there is more technical freedom. I think they have a danger. um, And that is the danger that uh, they're now getting more and more manufacturers in who will drive the price up so already i mean you know when we were running the zytec it was possible to have a look at an LM, lmp1 program uh, that way around but now those guys have driven it far beyond there so you know there's definitely two leagues developing i would like to see um the people that build the cars the audis and you know Nissan's toyotas whoever doing it um to be obligated to sell at least two cars outside of their own works to And it's a fixed ceiling price as well, yes. so they can spend as much on it developing it as they want. Exactly. But they can only sell it for, yeah. for X. Oh, which Bush yeah. traditionally did for countless years, didn't they? Exactly, and it worked. It worked for them, you know, because they don't give them away. Um, there are people out there. I mean, a little while ago, about four years ago, we had someone <coughs> approach us who, on the face of it, had unlimited money. Um, never saw it, but was playing that. <laughs> I, I think they did have, to be fair. But their one request was that we had to be able to do it with the current Audi, and Audi didn't want to sell a car. Mm. And it didn't matter what mm. you'd offered them, they didn't want to sell it. Mm. Which is, you know, it's fine, that's, that's their decision, and I can understand why, because even when we ran the cars, the two years we ran with them, we had to have five people from Audi to help us run the car, mainly for the engine and the gearbox but uh, now that would be about 18 people from Audi to run the cars yeah. so that makes it a lot more difficult for them they just don't have that amount of people we've only got 10 minutes left um, and we've 
barely touched the surface, actually. But anyway, we've done our best. Um, Mike, if you were to go back to one period in this five decades, which would it be if you could just have one more go at one more thing? Which one would you choose? Probably doing track talk down at Radio Victory <laughs> with you, Rob. <laughs> getting, getting drunk in the dog and duck before we started. Um, it was actually called the Museum Gardens. Oh, was it? All oh, right. <laughs> Jack and Daisy. All yes. right. Okay. Um, I think it would probably be Formula One because a guy I admire a lot because of the way he operated. If I have, if I had a fault when we were doing Formula One, whatever money we got in, we spent because we wanted to be at the pointy end as quickly as possible. Mm. And to be fair, you, you look at 89, brand new team, we had a third and a fifth. Yeah. You look at people now coming in with a lot less cars. <laughs> they die for it. They, yeah, they die for it. So I gave up a little bit too easy when it all got a little bit political at the end of 89. Um, and Eddie Jordan wouldn't. Eddie stuck in there. And it was tough, Freddie. I mean, I've always said to people, I remember when Keith Wiggins started with Pacific, he rang me up and he said, look, you've done it. Tell me about Formula One. And I said, hey, the first year is relatively easy. They pat you on the head and say, well done, you found your way to the circuit. The second year is a, that's a bitch. That's tough, the second year. And it always is. Second year is always more difficult. And um, Eddie stuck it out and mm. he had his problems and we know he had his problems and um you know i think you know bernie helped him at the time which was good and um eddie stuck at it and he got where i like to think we could have got to mm. with onyx so i'd like to revisit that in in the light of what i know now but didn't know then mm. um we were always a little bit self-effacing, I suppose. We felt that we shouldn't be there. We almost felt as though we were interlopers. I always remember, I can't remember quite well, it might have been Spain, and Bernie came down because there were a few extra garages there. All of the, you know, 14 cars that were trying to pre-qualify were out in the fields and you know, in the car parks and everything, and Bernie came down and he said, look, I've given you a garage. Um, yeah. If you don't pre-qualify, I'm going to come down here and you're in big trouble. But we we managed to stay in there for the weekend. But we always felt as though we shouldn't really be there. And if I, if we'd have done a proper second year, I think we'd have felt yes, we should be there. Mm. And Eddie would have been coming in, and he'd have been the one yeah. in that position. Yeah. Eddie got it right. I got it wrong. It's interesting because I th I think I'm pretty sure I'm right that you've that you won a championship. You've won a championship in every decade of your career, haven't you? No, oh. I'd no, like to. I'm wrong. Done. I've won a race in every decade. Oh, really? Sorry, yeah. I thought you'd. Yeah. Okay, okay. Uh, I've won a. I've won a race in every decade. Yeah, doesn't yeah. amount to much, but it yeah. was. It's. Hey, listen. When I joined, I didn't think I'd still be doing it. You know, I thought. Sure. You can talk. People can talk about the finance of the, and the politics and all that sort of stuff, but the thing that still excites me. Is the racing? Yeah, absolutely. You know, if you can stand on the, you can stand in the garage. We just say stand on the pit wall. You can't do that anymore. But you, you stand in the garage, and you see, you know, twenty Formula One cars waiting to go to the start, and you don't get an adrenaline rush out of it. You did. <laughs> it's too late for you. I mean, it's. I, I still love the racing. Yeah. Hence the fact that I'll, you know I watch. I don't know. Be, almost anything on television that's racing yeah <coughs> you say on television if you had to buy a ticket to something nowadays what would it be moto gp formula one historics at goodwood what would it be 
He doesn't have to get... I'll get him a ticket. Oh, right, you get him a ticket. Good to a bit. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're very cheap, Rob. Thank you. Some of them are half price. Um, <laughs> they're... Um, I'd probably... MotoGP. Mm. Um, if it had to be um, a sports car, it would be a six-hour sports car. Like Silverstone this weekend, yeah. I'd have bought a ticket for. Because I be think a good race. I think that's a perfect... That is a perfect... Scenario for sports cars. I mean, Le Mans is fantastic, and I'd love to go back and do it and do it and do it. But as regards keeping the excitement going, it's more difficult. A six-hour race at Silverstone or anywhere is fantastic. Mm. Yes, you know. Definitely. When we won um, Nurburgring with the Zytec against the Audis, I think the Daily Telegraph described it as one of the best sports cars. I mean, we took the lead with two laps to go. We, we overtook McNish with two laps to go <laughs> with the Zytec. And it was, so, it was so, so exciting. It really was. You could see it coming. We were going and going and going, thinking, well, did we get that last tyre change right and not put any fuel in? And it was coming and coming. And two laps from the end, we did him. To be fair, McNish said he almost pulled over because he knew there was nothing he could do about it. But it was, you know, that was fantastic. Yeah, a close finish at the end of six hours is just thrilling, isn't it? It's just it's gripping, gripping stuff. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, uh, Mike, what's happening right now? Because you're you're. Uh, don't, uh, it's like, There's a helicopter taking <laughs> off. That's what's happening <laughs> yes, right now. <laughs> helicopter racing is yes. going on. Um, you're you're building cars at the moment. Yeah, we've. Um, been involved for a little while with this TCR formula, which is touring cars again. Yeah, uh, but built to a price cap. Um, we had a look at it with Marcello Lotti and a lot of two other people, and said just like all motor racing, touring car has got very, very expensive. I mean, if you look at the British Touring Car Championship now; it's a lovely championship, well run, exciting, good TV, but it's very, very expensive. Mm-hmm. So we had a look around and said, okay, well, most of the manufacturers are producing. Um, an energy performance vehicle, Civic R's and GTI's and all sorts of things. Let's take those a little bit further. Not, you know, reinvent the wheel, but take them a little bit further and put a price cap on them, which was put on at 100,000 euros. Um, And that's the whole idea. I mean, there's an international series which has started, which was, it was probably started too early, but if we told people it was going to start in 2016, they'd be ready in 2017. So, Um, it's going forward there are a lot of manufacturers coming in there are 11 maybe 12 national championships um, being signed uh, for next year uh, so that people doing it will be able to move on to the international championship using the same product it's just a way to give people a chance to get into touring car racing and not be spending abnormal amounts of money what's the budget now for the for the British Touring Car Championship? Um, we haven't done it for two years, but we reckoned that uh, we were looking at uh, something round about 400, 450,000 pounds. Um, a lot of people operate on less. You know, some people go in at 250. Depends how you, I mean, for a front running team like Dynamics or Triple Eight or people like that, I can't see they're running on a lot less than 350,000, 400,000 pounds. That's big money. Per car per car and if you're you know if you're running two or three cars it's a lot of money to find i mean you know there's some good teams and if you look at the moment at motorbase cracking little team well run nicely done 
you know, they lost uh, Airwaves this year as a sponsor. They're not there this year, and it's it's sad. Yeah, I agree. Um, maybe we could persuade you to come back for part two one day. Because, for example, we haven't even mentioned the Sultan of Brunei. There's a, there's a, there's a... There's a story which we're not going to go into right now, but who knows, we might get Mike to go into that another time. I mean, there are so many things we haven't even talked about. Thank God for that. I thought you were going to ask me for a song to finish. Um, <laughs> can I just, can I just ask, ask one more thing? I mean, you were talking earlier about the success of the, the Marlborough system, and it did, it did bring a lot of people through. But it was also quite brutal in some ways. I mean, I'm just thinking of Alan McNish, who, Vauxhall Lotus, success, Formula 3, success, First year in Formula 3000, success. A rubbish second year in Formula 3000 through no fault of his own and was dropped like a stone. It didn't always seem a particularly sympathetic system. I think the problem was that, uh, again, with Alan, could have been a little bit of timing, but basically um, he did get um, his McLaren test drive out of it. Yes. Which yeah. was the opportunity for him to go forward. Um, it just happened to you know, coincide with the fact that uh, McLaren were fairly well fixed at that time um, and he was in a difficult place. Yes, it was brutal, but we did it. The, the whole package was a bit more than um, just giving them the money to go racing with. I mean, I don't know how much time we got, but I'll finish you with this story. We, uh, when we set it up, we decided what the budget would be, say, for a 3,000 team and offer it to the team that was going to do it. But we always told the driver we had to find £20,000 more. So they didn't walk into it thinking, well, that's it, I don't have to do anything. So they all had to go out and find twenty grand for auxiliary um, budgets. It's still quite cheap for an F3000 season, oh, twenty was, grand, yeah. yes. Yeah, but it was something. <laughs> yeah. So I spoke to Modena very late on, around about January, and he said, uh, I said, have you got your money yet? What's going on? Uh, I have a man down here. You come down and see him. So I jumped on the plane and I went down there, picked me up at the airport and drove me into the Ferrari factory. And we went in and met Mr. Ferrari. And uh, he, through his interpreter, said, did I think he was any good? And I said, yes, I think he's very good. And I think he will be okay. And uh, he said, uh, right, okay, very good. Good. We will help. And I had... Um, a book on Ferrari with me, a hardback book, and I said, uh, I do feel bad about this, but could you sign this for me? And he did. And he said something in Italian to the lady, and she came back with the same book, but in a beautiful hand-tooled uh, brown leather case with a Ferrari on, and he signed it. And we went down to see him not long before he died, just after we won the championship, and we were building the Formula One cars. And he said, and, uh, what engines are you going to run? And I said, well, we have to run a Cosworth. And he said, he called, I think it was Piccinini at the time, he called him in and said, uh, how many of those turbos do we have? And the answer came. And um, because they were going back to normally aspirated, yeah. it was a year <coughs> yeah. when you could run either. And, um, well, they have enough. You don't need to rebuild. Use the turbo. <laughs> and... I was dreading getting on the phone. I was excited, but I was dreading getting on the phone to Jenkins and saying, forget the normally aspirated <laughs> Cosworth, we're going to run the turbo Ferrari. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, 
It never happened because I, uh, Mr. Ferrari died, and once he died, the idea died with him, and so it never happened. So we went forward with the Cosworth, but uh, I had the pleasure of meeting him twice, which was a rare, rare honour. I mean, fantastic. Great we, story. We talked for a long time about John Barnard and Maggie Thatcher. That's what we talked about. <laughs> yeah, he did. Yes. Yeah. He always said, "No, he is, it's what Italy needs." Yes. Yeah, he was always. He yeah, always yeah, said yeah. Barnard marched his men into battle as though they were troops. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Great story. Not yeah. John Barnard, I knew, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, it's a great story to end on, Mike, and thank you so much for joining us today on, Pleasure. on our for uh, me. Motorsport Magazine podcast. Have you still got the book? I guess you have. Ferrari book. Yes, I have. Somewhere. I don't know where it, exactly where it is. It's Better than um, a pension scheme, right? <laughs> no, I'd never sell it. It means no. too much to me. I'll tell you what, Rob, I might leave it to you. <laughs> <laughs> I did only say might. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, Nigel, would you anything you'd like to ask Mike before we close? Seeing as you did describe the launch of the Onyx Formula One team is in the worst possible taste. Is there anything you'd like? Jesus, to Jesus, your past comes back to. Yes, yes, um, yes. It's a consequence of, of. Well, all right. Yes, all the drivers you've worked with, which which driver, which driver A did you think was the best, and and which did you enjoy working with the most? Probably enjoyed. Working with most was Piro, because you can't help but enjoy yourself with Piro. I mean, um, mm. there's a host of stories about Piro, mm, mm. but um, I probably can't tell them. But anyway, <laughs> um, but probably the best driver, potentially, was Modena. I don't think anybody ever saw just how good he was. He absolutely... We used to have a running gag in the thing. I used to think Prost was everything I had ever wanted to see in a driver. I thought he was fantastic and from very early on he said oh he will not live with Senna he will not live with Senna Senna is and he absolutely idolized Senna and it to a large extent was mutual as I say when we were at um, Spa doing the 3000 race we were on the downhill pits and they were up top and he was walking down one night and he said uh, how did you do I said I think he's second he said all oh, right he's going to be very good when he gets to Formula One he will be a threat yeah. and he rated him and he was he was just so, so only driver I've ever seen when we were sort of oh, one more story. Sorry, you'll be here all day. Okay. Um, we were at Valle Lunga and we were normally in the top three or four of qualifying, and uh, about ninth or tenth. And I said to him, Right, okay, what's wrong? Well, I don't know. Maybe I drive today a little bit like my sister. I said, Well, I said, Through the cutting at the back, are you flat? No. I said, well, I promise you, if the car's good and you've got new tyres on, that's flat. And he said, oh, okay. He went out with the tyres on, came in, dropped it on pole, came in, flicked the visor up, I plugged in, because no ship to shore in those days, and I said, uh, there you go, was it flat? And he said, yes, but only once. <laughs> <laughs> but, he but if he believed you, he would do anything. He was, he was uncanny in his um, understanding of what was going on in the car. He knew everything that was going on in the car. You could make very small changes and he'd say, oh, that is not correct, check it again. And he was generally right. And <clears throat> but I mean, he, he won the championship that year and the, I mean, the March 87B wasn't the greatest no, car we, March produced, was it? I no, mean, a lot of other teams struggled with it. I know you got... Yeah, we started... We started with, um, because we were the sort of semi-works team, 
We started, um, I think they had 11. By the fourth race, there were our two. Mm. Everybody sold them. Everyone had gone to Lola's or whatever, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, we found a solution to what the problem was. It was offered to other people, but by then they didn't think it would work. And it was nothing very clever. It was just the way we packed the dampers, to be honest. Took the suspension out of it, effectively. Um, but basically, um, it wasn't a great car, but he did a great job with it. You know, he was uh, Birmingham was a good race for him. Yes, that was very good. Uh, Imola was the best because it was his home race. Um, but yeah, no, he was he was pretty special. And in answer to the question, I'd say the people I worked with, not necessarily at the top of the. Of, he never. I, I never saw him as good as he could have been. I'd have loved if Bernie had carried on. And he'd been at Brabham's. Mm. I think he would have been a. A, a star. <laughs> when he got to Tyrrells and Jordan, both those teams, I mean, Eddie was playing with the Yamaha, I think, at the time, and uh, Tyrrell were in a bad place, and so he never got the chance. Great. Good. Well, I'm afraid we're out of time, but um, maybe we can persuade Michael to come back uh, during the winter for part two, because uh, there's many, 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 many more stories. And you know what? I just want to finish by saying one of the nice things about going to interview drivers from the past for Motorsport magazine is almost every one of them says, Hey, how is Mike? You good? What's Mike doing? Eh? It's and when's he nice. going to pay me? I have to say, nearly every driver I've ever worked with, I still get a Christmas card from, yeah. which is quite nice. Absolutely. You know. Yeah. Still a sport as well as a business, eh? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you very much. Great to have Michael here today. And uh, thanks to Simon Aaron, to Nigel Roback, and of course to Ed Foster, who makes all this possible for us, and to Alan Hyde, who records it all. It's goodbye from them and goodbye from me. See you next time. Eu não posso, 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 eu não